Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast, a production of neonewstoday.com. I'm your host, Dylan Grabowski. In this episode of the Smart Economy Podcast, I sat down and spoke with Lars Sire Christensen, the chairman of the Concordium Foundation. Concordium is a layer one public blockchain that was conceptualized in 2018 and seeks to offer scalability, security, decentralization, and regulation. The builders of the network aim to offer these utilities by leveraging digital identity, zero-knowledge proofs, instant finality, and sharding, among other strategies. In this conversation, Lars and I talk about building an online trading platform in the very early days of the internet, new technologies and their adoption cycles, the importance of digital identification, discovering Bitcoin early on, how Concordium seeks to provide certain features that other blockchains don't natively provide, and so much more. Just a reminder, nothing said on this podcast is a solicitation to buy or sell any tokens, that nothing should be taken as financial advice, and that the host or guests may hold tokens discussed in any given episode. With that said, I really enjoyed chatting with Lars, and I hope you enjoy the conversation too. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Economy Podcast. Today we are joined by Lars Sire Christensen, the chairman of the Concordium Foundation. How are you doing today, Lars? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really excited to jump into this conversation with you because in digging through the work you do and the work you're doing with Concordium right now, it's all very built upon a well-established layer of essentially being in an innovative space for the past three decades. So I kind of want to jump off asking about your role as a co-founder at Saxo Bank which is or was a financial multi-asset trading and investment platform. So can you just share with us a little bit about what the genesis was like for creating this platform in the late 90s when not everyone was using the internet? Yeah, happy to. And that's also, I think, a connection to wanting to move to the next big technology here. But uh, me and my my partner then, Kim Foneha, were early adopters of, of the internet at the time. And and I see actually a lot of parallels between early internet and early blockchain. You know, uh, that was a pretty nerdy space back in the day, right? And and we uh, we were very small uh, brokers uh, that later became a bank. And uh, and we thought here's some way that maybe we can differentiate ourselves a bit. And uh, so why don't we try to build a, an online trading platform? And and we went ahead and did that. There wasn't many around. I think we were the third or the fourth online trading platform in the world when we launched and there was probably less than 50 million users on the internet so uh, but we sort of uh, did the best we could and put together a trading platform and, and and while a lot of people were very skeptical of the idea of trading online at the time uh, you gotta say that that worked out quite nicely uh, because today nearly all trading in in areas of foreign exchange and derivatives and and even stocks are done online. So that, of course, was a was a great early mover advantage we got there, and and an interesting learning curve, and and also probably made me look for the next big transformative technology on an ongoing basis. And uh, I actually think blockchain is and 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 has a, a similar transformative potential to the one we saw back in the day on the internet. But it, it was fun to be early in that space as well. 
and actually quite parallel with a lot of skeptics, uh, not that many users, uh, uh, very nerdy interaction before browsers, etc. So I think it's, it holds some relevant learnings for the process that, that blockchain and crypto is going through at the moment. What were some of the early assets that you were trading at Saxo Bank? And what did like the regulatory approval process look like back when you first started? The first asset we really traded was foreign exchange because that was like a mainstay of our old world business, if you will, our old telephone-based business. So it was foreign exchange. And then uh, over the years, we added new asset classes. And uh, and, and today, actually, Sex Bank's platform uh, is, is one of the broadest multi-asset platforms in the world with, with tens of thousands of different assets across multiple asset classes. But when we started out with foreign exchange, which in many ways also could be lightened a little bit to uh, trading with, with tokens uh, and coins just in, in the fiat space, right? Which was a very elitist market at the time because you used to, as I said, sit and do this dealing on telephone meant that, you know, you could handle two, four clients max at a time and you know, things move around big numbers, so you simply couldn't uh, have a large client base, which meant that you obviously uh, prioritized your larger clients. And, and online trading completely democratized that so that everybody had the same service and, in fact, uh, a better service than we were able to provide over telephone. So it was also uh, something that made that market explode over time with, with many, many more users and, and much better service and much better pricing. So. Did you notice the growth in Saxo Bank at the time after you democratized the way that people were able to trade in Forex or trade into these other assets uh, as more and more people are able to communicate online and you're not kind of limited to the amount of hands that you have with a phone? Were you able to notice that the growth in Saxo's business was relative to that of the internet? in where there were more internet users, they were just more likely to search for these types of trading platforms and land on Saxo's webpage? Or did you have to do kind of like concerted marketing efforts to onboard new users and to walk them through what the internet was and to kind of do these processes like we might be seeing with folks who are learning how to use blockchain today? Yeah, I think, again, a lot of parallels. Actually, it wasn't very successful the first couple of years because people didn't really trust the internet. Oh, they were worried about the Millennium Buck, if you have heard about that, this terrible accident that was going to happen New Year's Eve on the year 2000, which where absolutely nothing happened in the end. And people were concerned about security uh, on the internet. Also, of course, there were very few users. So although it it was a clear, clear uh, improvement on, on sitting with the phones, uh, it actually took a couple of years to, to really get a significant traction on it. And, and a lot of people at that time, you have to remember, were sort of, remember speaking to many uh, executives from the industry saying, why are you wasting your money on this? It's, it's never going to work. And the internet is a fad and it will go away after a few years. People always want to speak to a dealer, right? So uh, it, it was interesting in the parallel, but it was actually a quite a slow start. Then uh, something happened in the 2000, 2001, 2002, that people actually began to trust interaction on the internet better. And, and then I think it was a combination of uh, people beginning to see the obvious improvements to earlier times uh, interaction with, with traders. Uh, 
Uh, and secondly, of course, the general growth of the internet. And then, as I said, also the democratizing. So you went from a relatively small, big-ticket trading community to being a much more widespread community of traders in, in that space. And, and many of those have actually poured over into crypto because the difference between trading a fiat currency and trading a token is not really that great, right? The underlying assets is different, but the method is the same, right? Mm-hmm. So it was a combination of a lack of enthusiasm or knowledge in the beginning, and then people realizing the obvious, and then a, a flood of, of business beginning to come in, right? And, and I think it's it's going to be much like this in, uh, in, in blockchain as well. You know, you have a skepticism, you have still too much nerdiness for interaction, you need some easier gateways so, so people can access this easily, possibly without even thinking about that they're using a blockchain, right? They're just reaping the benefits of, of an underlying blockchain without having to really have a PhD in cryptography to use it, right? Just like we're talking now on the internet, but we don't give it a we don't give it a second thought, right? We don't need to understand how the internet works or have a very nerdy background to use it, right? So that's gonna be for me the main breakthrough for blockchain when it gets easier to use and, and obviously people will just experience benefits from doing so in terms of more security and better registration of data and assets, et cetera, right? I just wanted, I forgot one thing you asked about regulation and actually regulation was relatively new in, in Europe in the mid nineties, you know, uh, prior to that, uh, it started a bit earlier in the UK and London in mid eighties, but prior to that, the uh, traditional financial services were, were pretty much the wild west, a little bit like early uh, blockchain and crypto days, right? And then regulation came first in the mid eighties in in London, then mid nineties in the in Europe where we were based in EU, and uh, of course it it changed. It wasn't particularly related to the online part of it. It was just general regulation of interaction with with clients because it wasn't very strong prior to that. And of course that led to a, a number of changes in in how people did business in the industry. A number of new things they had to live up to. And people are quite worried about it, just like people are worried in blockchain today about what's it going to do to us, right? What's it going to mean to us? And and of course, it forces you into some some processes and some practices that uh, that may mean that you have to adjust your business model or spend additional time on certain aspects that you don't see as as immediately value driving, etc. But but I think the silver lining that people need to understand is that. Once uh, an area is appropriately regulated, the trust that it generates in, in potential users, uh, the fact that you have a framework within people which people are comfortable, well, that will lead to a much faster adoption eventually. And, and we saw that, uh, you know, the, the traditional financial sector prior to these regulatory uh, initiatives were much, much smaller than what it was 10 or 20 years later or today. So. So yes, it gives you some additional uh, work to do, but on the other hand, it's a foundation of growing a, a serious business. I'm very sure that will repeat itself here, and I, I hope people remember that part when, when they're worried about regulation. It's actually going to assist their business grow and, and, and be much more successful, assuming they're willing to, to live up to it, of course. Yeah, I appreciate that you're, you're bringing the parallels to the concerns that regulation might have had as the internet was coming of age and the parallels to crypto today. One of the things I always say, I'm a millennial. Some of my earliest memories actually are using the internet. I've been using the internet since the the mid-90s. So I'm kind of internet native. 
And so what I always see or say to folks who might be skeptics of cryptocurrencies and blockchains is that ignoring blockchains today is like ignoring the internet in the 90s. So excuse me if I keep hammering home on this, but I just find it fascinating to be having a conversation with someone who essentially built a brand new business in the Wild West uh, of the internet in the late 90s. So I can understand why you have your conviction in crypto today. But I'm curious, what was your conviction for the internet in the late 90s when there were only 50 million users in the world? All of your peers and colleagues are calling you crazy. There was no previous precedent before. Like today, I can say we saw the internet explode and that's why blockchain is going to explode. But there wasn't that in the 90s. There wasn't a pre-internet internet. So what was it when you guys launched your trading platform online? Where did the conviction come from? What kept you going, especially during those first few years when you weren't really gaining traction? And I would say, uh, and, and I share many of your views and observations, so interesting that you were also there at the time, because I think it is valuable for this industry to learn from that process, right? Now, I don't know if you can say that there wasn't precedence to it, like the PC back in the day also completely changed the world, you know? So there are occasionally these sort of major game-changing events and uh, and like you could guess you could say the mobile phone or the the smartphone also was a, a similar transition uh 15 18 years ago whenever that was right but uh i think it was so obviously a better solution to many things on improvement and so back to the internet now it, it was such an obvious improvement to so many processes in terms of distributing information distributing data etc that that you know I think actually Mark Andreessen put it very well back in the early 90s when he did the first browser. And he said, uh, we, we don't know what we're going to use it for, but we know it's going to be something big about the internet, right? And I have a little bit the same feeling here with, with blockchain, right? It's hard to predict what the killer use case is going to be, right? And it was in the mid-90s uh, very hard to predict what the big use case was going to be. Now, we happen to have a financial institution we saw that it could improve our service and our processes and everything really around what we're doing. So we gave it a shot, but uh, and, and other people gave it a shot in their industries, right? And, and the way that things worked out and other things didn't, right? But like, think about eBay. eBay, I don't know if you recall, was, was built on the base of people that collected sweet containers and liked to exchange them, right? Uh, so they built this platform so they could exchange their, their sweet packaging so that they had collected in the physical world easier with other, and then they built on to that right but of course uh, at the time not a lot of not anybody was thinking about social media to the extent that it, that became a huge success uh, google hadn't really uh, reared its uh, face yet so uh, obviously if we had had that kind of foresight we'd have built facebook or google instead of sex bank right but <laughs> but i think it's very parallel here you know you can see that blockchain is so relevant to anything really involving data right and 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 what business model does involved data today and who wouldn't want to have safer data more immutable data more structured data more more searchable data and in essence i actually think blockchain is what the internet has that's the aspect of the internet has been missing all the time right because the internet is so so easy to fake it on it's so easy to be untrue on you know you can do everything fake you have no idea who you're interacting with or 
you don't know who the email is coming from, to be honest. Uh, very shortly, we can't even be sure that it's you and me sitting talking here. It would be so easy to make an avatar of each of us and, and copy our voice and copy our, our tone of voice, right? So the internet, there's biggest fault line really is the lack of being able to to identify and, and, and be absolutely sure what you're dealing with. And, and this is the aspect that blockchain brings to the party, right? And and that goes for so many industrial processes, so many fund processes uh, and entertainment areas, et cetera, that, that I have very much the same feeling as Mark Andreessen expressed it back then. We know it's going to be big, but it's hard to say exactly what it's going to be, uh, what's going to be the absolutely killer use cases. So you got to try your way. But one thing that I am sure about just, and then I should mention that also, that, that a very important part of, of the bank's business was to build this platform, not just for ourselves, but as an infrastructure for other financial institutions. So there's about 100 banks and brokers today using the infrastructure that we built. And one thing is for sure that blockchain also needs very solid infrastructure, right? And where I think a lot of people are sort of, ah, layer one, that's so last year. I don't think there's a really well-functioning layer one out there uh, yet. You know, either it has lack of, of, of scalability or it hasn't found the balance between privacy and accountability or or it's, can actually, it's not as secure as it claims to be because you can roll it back if you gain control of the system, blah, blah, blah. So that problem is by no means last year, right? And, and that is what we're trying to solve at Concordium is to provide that rock solid piece of infrastructure that can take that role uh, and infrastructure for me is always really the place to be the most interesting place right you can build many apps they go in and out of fashion they most of them don't ever get traction but uh, a piece of infrastructure that can support all the old people in uh, in building great great innovative stuff but on a solid foundation tends to last right mm-hmm. And that being said, of course, we, we will also see some rotation in, in preferred layer ones because some of the ones that are being used out there just don't tick the boxes that I mentioned. But people maybe not fully, the industry is not fully mature enough to really do the kind of tech due diligence that, that a big corporate would do if they impl- implemented a new new piece of technology. You touched on a lot of things that I want to I wanna bring out throughout this conversation, such as the prevalence of... AI and the ability to perform deep fakes. And this is something that kind of piqued my interest in to Concordium was the focus on identity. But before we kind of like delve into why you took up the fight to build a new public layer L1, something that you've spoken about in, in your previous interviews and something that I find fascinating is that you take a very bottom-up approach. It's not necessarily a company or a corporation, an enterprise or a government that's going to say, use this technology and that's how it gets becomes pervasive in society. You've kind of alluded to in your previous conversations that it's really the adoption from the grassroots from the bottom up where these architectures and infrastructures that you're speaking about really rise to prominence. So maybe you could just share a little bit of your philosophy about why the everyday person is so important when it comes to adopting these new infrastructures? Well, when you are building a new foundation really for for the global economy, which I think uh, the blockchain industry is, it is not typically driven from the top down. The internet wasn't driven top down at all, right? It was a bunch of nerds like uh, us back in the day that 
thought this was fun and interesting and uh, and we started building stuff you know it wasn't the government that built spectrum bank it wasn't the government that built browsers and 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 it shouldn't you know uh, in my view i'm not a, a huge government fan because uh, you you need the innovation and and lots of, of minds to try to create their their own thing right now now there's another mind in town and, and that's a completely different conversation and what what the AI is going to do to us all but uh in general, you know, these things have to be built bottom up uh, also because they typically are based on on low fees and or, or no fees and, and, and facilitation of stuff. You need the mass adoption for, for many of these models to work. You know, Facebook with 250,000 paying users wouldn't work, right? Uh, in fact, there were people that built earlier Facebook uh, clones but went down that route and, 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 and didn't make it, right? So clearly, this industry is ultimately going to be dependent on mass adoption, right? Apart from exchanges, there's not a lot of people making any money whatsoever in this industry, and it's still investment heavy, right? Uh, so uh, I, I believe in people seeing the actual benefit to them in their everyday life, that there's things that they can now do, experiences they can now have that they couldn't have before. And it's for us that build stuff to make those things as easy to access, as interesting and as groundbreaking and new ways of looking at things or new ways of making people feel safer, which I really think is, if I should put a tagline to Concordium, that is what we do. We try to build a safer digital world, right? Uh, and, and that applies as much to a big corporate or, or a public sector project as it applies to to people just wanting to know that when they buy an NFT, it's actually issued by the person that, that, that claims to own the IPR in, in that digital file. You know, it's normal people out there want to know that if they interact with somebody socially on a social media, that, that it is in fact the person that that they think it is. I think also with metaverses and virtual realities, which I'm a great believer in. I think we sooner rather than later, but certainly in the longer run, we'll be living large parts of our daily life in, in virtual environments because they're going to be very lifelike and they're going to be much more interesting than most of our lives, right? And again, there it's such a such a, a fertile breeding ground for for people faking it, right? But if you're not even seeing people but you're seeing their avatars or however they want to show themselves you know that can be fine if you're dancing around to a virtual con concert who cares right but if you if you want to do a piece of business or or, or you want to have a, a social relation with somebody you might want to know who they are you know I, I liken it in the old world to so like if you go into a bar you're quite comfortable having a beer without asking everybody around you for their passports right but if one of them want to bet on the football match on the screen, you know, and you bet an amount and he says, oh, I'll pay you tomorrow. If I lose, well, then, then you probably do want to know who he is, right? And, and then it's it's convenient if he can identify himself. So I see this as a, as an offer to people. I also see very much a self-sovereign play in it, the self-sovereign ID play, because we have given away far too much of identity to the big current uh, tech platforms that 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 make huge sums of money on on, on our identities, but uh, actually uh, those should be under our control, and we should share them carefully with people when we feel it's the right thing to do. And if there's a monetization to be made on it, uh, then we should also receive part of that monetization, right? Uh, so, so there's many things at play here, but the fundamental building block in the world, in my view, is actually ID, right? If I cannot be sure that you are Dylan and you cannot be sure that I'm Lars, I mean, what's the meaning of this interview, right? 
if I cannot be sure that that you in fact are from a podcast and then you are going to release this, why should we spend an hour together here, right? And and then this this confidence that that an intelligently built ID layer can give people, I think, will be also incredibly important for mass adoption, right? Because for sure. A corporate's not going to enter into a system if half of its users are anonymous, right? Uh, in the financial sector, it would be illegal, even. Uh, but in many, many industries, you, you wouldn't want to venture down that route, right? But I also think for for normal users, when we when we're just uh, looking around uh, the digital world, you know, there will be multiple locations where we want to know what we're dealing with, and other cases where we don't care so much, right? I think another thing is ID is so. Uh, binary today right obviously binary per se is uh id per se is binary either you're dylan or you're not either i'm Lars or i'm not but also if you go down to the kiosk uh, and you have to prove that you're over 18 right because you want to buy something it hasn't been a problem for me for a few years but uh, <laughs> but it, it is for young for, for a young person right today you have to actually give the person behind the counter all of the information including perhaps your home address your your exact age, your social security number, et cetera. And that can be abused, right? Now, the only thing that guy behind the counter needs to know is you're over 18, right? And with advanced knowledge proofs and, and, and control of ID, you can show him exactly that with beyond question. Yes, I'm over 18, but I don't have to tell you my name. I don't have to tell you that I'm resident in this or that country. I don't have, certainly don't have to give you my address. And I don't have to give you a an ID that you can go and copy in the back room and then uh, defraud me, right? Uh, so this whole thing about giving people back control of their ID is, is very critical. And, and only on the basis of that, in my view, you can allow then a lot of privacy between people. And I think a lot of the early generations of blockchain essentially got it completely wrong. You have two anonymous uh, parties interacting, but everybody can see everything they do, right? And that, that's not how the world works, right? In a bank account, you know who owns it if you're the bank, and anybody that needs to transfer money will will know. But we don't flash the contents of that on the internet, right? Uh, people don't need to know everything about you. So we're kind of flipping that at Concordia. We're saying, you know that you're dealing with a person that's been willing to ID him or herself or corporate. It's not just personal ID. You know that you can trust it. If you exchange some of that information, you can trust that it's true. But apart from that, if you want to do something in private, uh, then you should be allowed to do it, right? So we're trying to flip back to how the world really works and should work. I, I think ID is a very, very critical component in this. It's also, of course, critical with all the regulation that's going to come in and is coming in now. I was actually a very early adopter also of this space. I think I bought my first Bitcoin in 2011 or 2012, maybe, right? And I, I was very enthusiastic about it, but I got also a bit skeptical along the way because I could see so many hurdles to mass adoption, right? Uh, the, you know, the tech's not scalable, the anonymity, the the actual lack of, of, of certainty because you, you don't have finality layers, uh, which is another thing we build at Concordium. Uh, so that's why I sat down one evening and, and decided to say, let me... Let me give my shot at it. Let's take all the best things from a decentralized system, which I'm a great believer in, no single point of failure, no central control of the system, but marry it to uh, how the how the world is going to look a few years down the line when regulation is also implemented here. Because, of course, we will have regulation that that's so evident that, and it will, uh, it will continue to come. You know, Also here, people have perhaps learned from 
as an example, the TradFi sector. Many people think now, oh yeah, uh, regulation, a little bit irritating, but let's get it in place and then we'll move on in two years time, right? Now I have news for you. That's not how regulation works, right? Regulation will be a continuous stream of initiatives till the end of time, right? So it's not like two years from now, everything will be settled and we know what to do. You will have to continuously adjust to new regulation coming in because that's how regulation works. You know, it identifies an activity. It tries to understand it. If it's a good regulator, take some feedback for the people that execute that particular activity. Then it comes up with proposals and hearings and, and ultimately some politician votes for it. And, and if they vote yes, you have to follow it. And it's going to continue like that forever because that's what it does everywhere else in society, right? I love the the example you brought up when it comes to identity. We've grown up in a world where when you go to the bar here in the States, if you go to the bar, you have to be 21 or older, uh, where we just show a form of identification. And now the bartender knows where I live, what county I'm in. They have access to way much more information than they really need when they really only needed to verify one thing if I was born on a certain day or after that. So that's kind of like the example I use to kind of relay the importance of what kind of information we share with people and we should feel like we have the right to be able to share with people. So it's really interesting to hear you you touch upon that and also finality as well with with Concordium. So many really cool things that you're implementing into the to the L1. Uh you did mention that you got into Bitcoin, you bought your first Bitcoin in 2011, you're an OG. What was your thought process like when Ethereum came out and there was smart contract functionality? Were you trying to figure out identity solutions and finality solutions for Bitcoin between 2011 and when Ethereum came out in 2016? Did this new public blockchain change your perception about the way that blockchain networks could be used? What did that evolution look like for you when a smart contract platform came around? I liked the Ethereum addition of the smart contract very much at the time, right? Because uh, there was really only Bitcoin, right? And people were sort of thinking this is the beginning and the end of it all and it's going to rule the world. And, and again, that's not how the real world works, right? So I was always sure that some smart people were going to do more with this technology. And Ethereum was the first example. Now, by pure chance, a lot of those guys were sitting in a villa down in Souk in Switzerland, uh, and I live about uh, an hour's drive from there. So I actually knew the guys cool. before they started. And I like that project very much. In fact, I still have occasionally people thanking me because I put up a Facebook post well before the launch of Ethereum and said, you know, if you like Bitcoin, you should have a look at this one. So I, I, a few people bought on the original auction due to that. And are still sending me thank you notes for making them millionaires, right? <laughs> <laughs> but uh, So I, I like that very much. I think the smart contract was was uh, a great addition to the whole space, right? Uh, and I wasn't at that time. I was still I, I, when I first saw Bitcoin. I, I thought it was it was intellectually stimulating, and uh, but to be honest, I was also looking at it. Could this be an asset that we could have on the Saxon Bank trading platform, right? Uh, because it, it looked it looked like a currency. It, it looked like a currency. It talked like a currency. You know, it probably was a currency, right? And that wasn't as obvious at the time as as it is today, because nobody would really trading it, right? A few people were buying, but uh, not really a trading volumes at the time. And, and actually, we didn't eventually implement it in, in uh, Saxo Bank at the time because my legal and compliance did a backwards flip, flick back when I, when I suggested it. And it didn't seem like a, 
like a fight worth having at the time, right? Uh, so I, I, re- I regret that to this day because we could easily have been the first bank to support that space, right? But but you know you can't uh, you can't cry over spilled milk, right? I, I would say at that time I was still just generally quite enthusiastic and an ambassador among friends and family for Bitcoin and then subsequently Ethereum, and it was only around sort of a little later that I began to find it very hard to reconcile my day job as the CEO of Saxo Bank, where I was inundated with regulation all the time and this complete free, free wheeling, dealing Wild West. And, and I, <laughs> I, I, just, I just couldn't reconcile the two things in my mind. And, and that's when I began to think, you know, this will also be regulated in the same way this will, because it was beginning to look more and more like financial assets, some of the things. And if it's a financial asset, it's going to get regulated. That's just the way it is, right? So the, it was around about the launch of Ethereum and, and 15, 16, that I began thinking a lot about it. It was a very unpopular message at the time because of the, this new new uh, environment there wanted their free world and they wanted their the freedom from government and, 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 and banks and the financial system. And I, I kind of sympathize. I'm a bit of an anarchist at heart, you know, but, uh, but unfortunately also forced to some realism when you're the CEO of an investment bank. Yeah. So I sympathize with those ideas, but I never really believed that it would be allowed to continue that way. And obviously it's evident to everybody now, but it certainly wasn't at the time. Right. So traveling with that message guys we have a problem with the anonymity we have a problem with uh, with with sort of uh, no regard for how trading and 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 the icos were clearly you know uh, they were clearly defect to many ipos you know which which would of course be heavily regulated and and, and we never did raise money that way because i was sure that it's going to come and bite you off later later because the other thing a regulator is somewhat backwards looking even though the law only comes today you can still get punished or pursued for, for something you did years before if they feel that you should evidently have known better, right? So so uh, we never did ICOs or anything like that, only private placements. It's only to non-US uh, citizens also because we also know that they have very, very, very stringent uh, views on that and, and, and a lot of opaqueness actually around it even today in the traditional financial sector. So, so we made very clear to... Be self-complying kind, if you will, even though there was nothing to comply to, because I, I was convinced at the time that that uh, this space would go in the direction that it's now going. Uh, but and hence, I'm not so worried about it. I think, uh, as I said, there's a silver lining in it because it will bring more business to the space once people feel more comfortable with it and feel that they operate in a in a safe environment that they can trust. And to be honest, you've seen a lot of excesses in this space in the early days where people basically got robbed of their money, right? And that's not good for confidence. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you've been kind of seeing a lot of issues with these public blockchain networks, and you've seen the pros and the cons of the digital assets as as they've come along. You liked Bitcoin, you're an anarchist at heart, and and you liked some of that sort of freedom of the market perspective and, and ultimate individuality. And then when Ethereum comes around, you say, hey, wow, there's some utility here. We can start to use these networks in ways that are beyond just uh, a currency that Bitcoin's acting like. But it sounds like even when Ethereum came out, there were still issues that you were having that you felt like a project under your direction or that you were a part of leading, you could affect some different types of changes. So 
when did you start conceptualizing Concordium like officially? Was it after the ICO run? When was it that you kind of like got a group together, you put pen to paper and you're like, all right, we're going to do this? I checked it in my calendar because it was a very specific event. And so I can tell you with certainty, it was the 13th of December, 2017, because I had a Christmas lunch in Zurich with a leading figure in the industry. And I was sharing my misgivings, you know, anonymity, lack of scalability, lack of this and lack of that. And this poor chap just threw up his arms and said, if you're so unhappy with everything, why don't you build your own blockchain? <laughs> <laughs> and I checked when the, once when that date was, no, 13th of December, 2017. So I went home and I, I said, yeah, maybe you're right, you know, because you're, you're building these with small teams, much, much smaller teams than we had in the bank, for example, where we had a thousand IT engineers. So why not? It can't be that complicated, right? It isn't, actually. So that was the very day. And I went home that evening and I said, yeah, the guy's right. You know, he can't just sit and complain, you know. So I sat down and made a checklist, which is pretty much the one we, we built the project from. And, and then we took it from there in early 18, right? That uh, person also gave me very good advice because I don't really know how to build a blockchain, so how should I do it? And he said, uh, you should start with the science, right? Because this is cryptography. It needs to be solid. It needs to be unbreakable. And that sounded to me like sound advice. So I uh, I got in touch with a, a couple of scientists, cryptographic scientists. was very happy to find out that I didn't know at the time, but very happy to find out that one of the world's leading cryptographic science department actually is at a Danish university. I'm Danish myself. So that was helpful that I didn't have to go to the end of the world. And, and they already knew me from Saxo Bank and they were excited and said, yeah, we'd love to build that together with you, right? Uh, so I started actually with building a science team and we still have, in my view, one of the best, if not the best science team behind any blockchain. Really, really impressive figures that actually have built some of the so-called cryptographic primitives that are in general used in all of the blockchain industry, like the the, the hash code between blocks was invented by my lead scientist, even them got back in, in, in 1989. So, uh, so very strong science team, uh, just because I wanted to make sure that we got that bit right. Uh, and then I built a tech team from that, which is a little more traditional, like I knew I had learned how to build tech in Saxo Bank. Uh, so it's not a sort of five guys and girls in a garage type job. But building a team that actually thought about architecture and documentation and formal verification of smart contracts and stuff like that. And finally, I, I still had the vision that if we were to cut out any place for ourselves, it had to be to build a platform that really would make uh, everyone comfortable to use it, including big corporates. So uh, we brought on some people with experience in, in what does a corporate really need to, which boxes does the corporate need to tick it? in order to venture into a, new, into a new technology, right? That being said, and we often misunderstood that way, we're not the corporate blockchain or something like that. We are a use case agnostic layer one, and we love NFT platforms and games just as much as we love to help big corporates, you know? So I just want to stress that point because it's being misunderstood sometimes. But we also love to, to help corporates with, uh, with industrial scale data use cases. And, and these guys couldn't do it if we didn't have some of the features that we have. Yeah, so when I'm when I'm going through the website and I'm digging into Concordium, you definitely get this kind of consortia enterprise chain sort of vibe, but then you also go out of your way to say, we're onboarding DeFi uses, like we like GameFi, we like NFTs. So it's very obviously a public blockchain. But when I'm researching Concordium, the three things that kind of stand out to me that 
kind of really show that there was a lot of thought that was put into this and it's not just like a fly by the night copy paste EVM chain is the integration of an identity layer, zero knowledge proofs, and a finality layer. So could you just share a little bit more about those kind of like three key things that really can make that native integration uh, a really useful chain for a project that's exploring a new public layer one blockchain? Yeah, and you're right in, in identifying those areas. I would add one more on that's scalability, right? And, and even one more on that's uh, fixed fees, right? That you can predict the cost you're going to have to execute a use case, right? Because some things that work fine on Ethereum in the beginning uh, would be prohibitively expensive to execute directly on, on Ethereum today, right? So, so we have a model of, of, of fixed fees that they will only go down, not up. And we can do that because it's a proof of stake blockchain, which incidentally is another thing that, in my view, I understand fully the arguments behind proof of work, but I also see a very, very significant problem with the narrative because uh, every business in the world is now trying to show that it's responsible and it's energy use, etc. And it's very hard to reconcile the proof of work model with, with that narrative, right? So proof of stake is also critical and actually safer, in my view, than, than proof of work because it doesn't lead to the same concentrations as, as mining proofs do. But, but that's a, a more esoteric point. But I think proof of stake is safer than proof of work. But yes, actually, among the scientists, we also have some of the world's leading scientists in, in zero knowledge, uh, understanding and MPC, etc., multi-party computing. Those aspects, I, I think, are, are critical, certainly also for DeFi, because DeFi is an area that will be particularly exposed to regulation, right? And and uh, and I love DeFi. I think the way uh, there's so many areas you can you can improve on the traditional financial system. I know intimately from having been in it for decades, uh, the, the pain points there, and, and there are many. And it's not inclusive because of all these pain points, right? So uh, there's a lot DeFi can teach and, and can benefit the traditional financial system and a lot of innovation. But they will be at the forefront of regulation. Hence, I think that they would benefit from building on a chain like ours where we do at least some of that thinking for them and help them implement these things around ID and KYC in an easier way. So those things are critical. Of course, finality, as you pointed out, that is a very underexposed subject in blockchain. I don't even think most people would really understand the importance of it. But finality is, in essence, that you have an additional layer to the consensus layer. And that finality layer basically decides that the last block minted is also de facto a new genesis block, right? So anything before that last block cannot be changed. Even if somebody managed to gain control of the system uh, from a point, there would be no way that they could roll back everything that happened in the past and you would know exactly where the problem occurred and be able to restart exactly from that point in that very unlikely event because it is hard to take control of a, of a decentralized system. But, but that's very important because uh, actually we know already that you have to, to wait for several blocks in Bitcoin to be 100% sure that the transaction has gone through. And that is with a, with a nice word called probabilistic finality, right? What we do is deterministic finality, that this is finality and it cannot be rolled back, right? And then certainly for if you are a financial institution and you want to commit billions of dollars to a blockchain, you need to have this. You can't be 99.99% sure that nothing's going to go wrong. You've you got to be 100% sure, right? Also for regulatory purposes. So the finality layer is very important. Then, of course, scalability is very important because uh, we, see, we see now an interesting situation in Bitcoin, right? That 
actually finally with the BRC20 uh, coins, people are beginning to try to use Bitcoin for something else. And what happens? The system is massively congested. The tons of, of pending traditional Bitcoin transactions and fees go through the roof, right? And that just shows that scalability is also an issue. And the only way you resort to fixing that is by using layer twos. But layer twos, in my view, is corrupting the idea of a blockchain, right? Because now you are just like in the old world, you're going to introduce more points of failure, right? And 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 if you use a layer two that can do a lot of transactions, well, I can tell you how they do that. They do that with a compromise on security, right? Because that's the only way you can do it at this point. So you're introducing a, a new security risk and a level of uncertainty and multiple points of failure all of a sudden, which, which to me is not what blockchain should do. Uh, you should construct a blockchain where you can actually do all of your core transactions directly on that blockchain if you want to be true to the DNA of blockchain. So scalability is hugely important, right? Now, we have much higher scalability than Bitcoin or Ethereum, obviously, by a smarter design, but ultimately, also, we need to create even more scalability. And the way to do that is, is sharding, right? So we also have some real experts on on sharding. And sharding, again, is a little misunderstood because it's not hard to do sharding. You just basically take a copy of your blockchain and position it in parallel and, 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 and copy-paste as your need for for scalability growth, but the real problem with sharding is not doing the shard, it's the intercommunication between the shards. So you end up with 1,000 people sitting in one shard and they can interact efficiently, 1,000 people sitting in another shard and they can interact efficiently. But what happens when one of them wants to deal with somebody in the other shard? And that's the problem about sharding. And, and, and that's also something where we have some really groundbreaking research on this. And once you solve that, and we will solve that, or somebody else might do it, and, and typically that would be free open source uh, science uh, from universities. But we are very far progressed on that journey. And once you have that, that you have a true interoperability between the shards and, and an infinite number of shards, then you also have infinite true layer one scalability. And, and that is the Nirvana blockchain, in my view, introducing all these layer twos is a, is a corruption of the idea. I honestly could spend another 15 to 20 minutes on each of those five subsections to hear more about how Concordium is implementing these and kind of like the progress that your research team is making on things like sharding. But we only have like a few more minutes left and I want to be cognizant of your time. So I kind of want to zoom out a little bit and get a little bit bigger picture. So you conceptualized this after you were called out in 2017 and you indeed went and found a research team. You started building these five key areas you've discussed uh, have been pain points in the various different popular networks over the years, individually, over their own time. What is it like going out there and, I guess, quote unquote, selling this vision of this layer one that you created? What is the reception from partnerships that you're making or potential enterprises you're speaking with? or even governments or corporations, are people receptive to this message? Or are they kind of stuck in the, if it's not Bitcoin or Ethereum, then we don't want to pay attention to it viewpoint? I would say two things around that. Corporates are certainly receptive because they understand what they need, right? When we go out and we get a, an opportunity to present to a corporate, it, it gets their attention, right? Also because uh, they're not very interested in, for example, the size of the ecosystem, right? The big selling point for Ethereum is it has a large ecosystem. 
Uh, and that's nice if you have something very cryptonative that you uh, where you would like immediate uses. But a corporate use case is often based on on uh, something where they want to secure their data better. They actually couldn't give a toss whether Bitcoin goes up or down, or, or whether you have a lot of uses or not, because that's not why they're coming there, right? Also, then you have the other layer where people that have traditional big user bases, uh, for example, in the music industry. A big band wants to try to generate some additional revenues and some more artistic freedom by, by selling uh, premium utility NFTs, right? Uh, but 95% of their fan base is not on the, is not on, 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 on in the crypto native space anyway. So they got to lead people somewhere in order to achieve what they do. So also there, I think the value of a big ecosystem is fairly relevant, right? Now, that being said, and that is the one place where I believe we haven't been good enough, is that, of course, the crypto natives are important. Uh, of course, the early adopters here are people that you should uh, you should be good to, you should help, you should have at the very high point in your agenda. And I think we have we have failed a little bit on that. And that's also why I was at, at it's important for me to stress that we're not this corporate chain uh, image, right? Uh, so uh, I'm the chairman of the Concordium Foundation, but I have recently gotten more involved in, in the operational side of it. And, and one of the first things um, I have uh, done a lot of work with is our marketing and, and our narrative uh, so that we we can actually spread the word better out there also among the crypto nature space because I think we have lots of stuff to offer them. But I also think we have maybe been seen as somewhat irrelevant or maybe even alienating uh, a little bit by our talk about, you know, regulations coming and you need to address it, right? But I think I think people are beginning to accept that that's the way it is. And that makes us just more relevant than, than ever. But we haven't been good at spreading the word there. And therefore, Concordium is a pretty well-kept secret, you know, and um, I'm going to change that as best I can, right? Because I, I think it does have a, a high degree of relevance to crypto-native uh, use cases and crypto-native users. And I, I have a great deal of respect for the innovation that's happening in these spaces because they are the ones that are coming up with with brilliant new ideas for how a better financial system could work, how a better distribution mechanism for artists, music and art and uh, could work. Uh, all the innovation happens there. So I, I really want to stress the point that we're also there for that segment and we have we have relevant stuff to offer that maybe can make their life a little bit easier. And, and we, we, we love uh, everything that's being created by at the sort of innovative edge of blockchain too. But we also want to make, make corporates confident in, in, in venturing into this. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, you know, we have, a, we have like maybe a little bit of spring now, but we had a crypto winter for a while where the exchanges saw dramatic drops in volumes and the, the retail users sort of stepped back. There's been no change in corporate interest that's just growing and growing and growing, you know. And, and, and those guys are looking at it completely uh, from a different angle than maybe we do in the crypto native space right so they really don't care whether whether bitcoin goes up or down they don't need financing because they they, they can finance their own projects they don't need big user bases because either they're going to bring them themselves or they don't need them full stop so that is a positive sign for me that uh, i give a number of sort of you know these on the way home evening meetings for c-level people you know or by some of the advices and three or four years ago you couldn't have collected 50 c-level people on a, on a thursday night on their way back from the job and listening to blockchain and today you can they don't know much about it so they're still appreciative of you trying to simplify things they have this view that blockchain is extremely complicated i have the view that it's extremely simple technology really 
Uh, I mean, obviously not the cryptographic stuff, but how a blockchain works is, is a lot easier to explain than actually how the internet works, right? So there's a distinct development, positive development there that that people in business want to know about this and, and increasingly begin to see where maybe it could serve a purpose in their, in their corner of, of business, right? Well, if you think Concordium is a well-kept secret with 140,000 Twitter followers, I'm really looking forward to seeing what it looks like when Concordium is splashed onto the mainstream and you've, you've achieved all the uh, end users that are accessing the network that you envision will. So kind of, I guess, wrapping up, if we could look forward to two years where we're definitely out of crypto winter, we're in spring, maybe we're in summer, who knows? You've mentioned that you're talking with C-level execs right now, but you're also looking to find the crypto natives. So in two years, what would be some of your dream projects, whether they're DAOs, NFTs, DeFi, whether there is indeed a corporation that is utilizing the Concordium L1? In two years, what are some of the dream projects that you would like to see actively building in the ecosystem? I think that the way that this space is most likely going to develop is that there's not going to be a winner takes all. Uh, there's going to be a number of, uh, not many, not, not hundreds, but uh, maybe a dozen or so leading layer ones. Uh, some of them are going to be more successful than others, but there's going to be a number, but not a gigantic number of layer ones that find a space in this future economy, if you will, right? And I want to be one of those, right? I don't have to be the biggest. I'm not looking for world domination and you shouldn't do, you shouldn't look for that with a decentralized uh, system anyway, right? But but I would like to be one of those blockchains. And uh, and that means uh, supporting business and use cases across a very broad spectrum, right? Again, what I would like to contribute with Concordium is a safer digital world, you know, because it's going to be a bigger part of our lives. It's going to be perhaps the dominant part of our life in in a couple of decades, maybe before technology de- develops very fast. And people need to feel confident in, in being in this world, right? So I don't necessarily have to do everything for a use case, but I would like to add that element of confidence and safety that I sincerely believe Concordium can do. And I would like to, we have some music projects I'm involved in, in one directly also as an investor. And, and it's very interesting how, how artists have lost their revenue streams in recent years. Spotify has killed uh, many of the revenue streams. Uh, and, and to give them back some power over their own IP and how they choose to distribute it, how they may be able to generate good income streams from their super fans and distinguish more between different fan groups, etc. It's also about giving these people a better opportunity to to actually also be allowed to make some money on, on what they do so well and that we all we all have joy from every day and today they're not right so that's just one example it, it's also about helping people gain more control of their product of their lives of their id and i think we can play a, an important role in that but people need to know that we're there right uh, i have very rarely a meeting with somebody that might even have decided on another blockchain that wouldn't walk away from that meeting, at least thinking very carefully about their choice, right? But you can't do this only through meetings because that's like a, a question of scalability, right? You you need to have the viral uh, effect of that and people wanting to build. And, and that's where I believe we have failed, to be honest, that we haven't made ourselves as visible as I believe that the blockchain deserves. And, and it, it pains me a little bit to see very mediocre 
projects out there having tons of traction, disappointing their users, uh, not working, breaking down. When I know that there's a better alternative, but people don't know about it. But I can only look at one person for that. And that's the person I see in the mirror in the morning. And that's not a very nice experience to begin with. But <laughs> I have to take that responsibility and change it. And, and that's what I'm working hard to do. Lars, um, I honestly could keep on talking with you for hours on end. It's fascinating to hear the experience you've had in innovative sectors and the kind of determination you've had to to stick them out. And it's fascinating to see the parallels of starting uh, Saxo in the late 90s and starting Concordium in the late 2010s. So really cool to hear your insights. Very fascinating to hear the directions in which uh, you've spearheaded the blockchain you're building along with your team. Uh, I'm really looking forward to following along because I think those are the the five areas you dug into are just phenomenal aspects that blockchain can offer that we still aren't even talking about today. So hopefully, by the time like the mainstream is kind of coming around to the utility that blockchain networks can give them, things like zero knowledge proofs and identity layers and finality will really matter. And when that starts to take effect at the mainstream level, then your average retail investor will really, or even user, will really take heed in the blockchain networks that they choose to use. So thank you so much for spending an hour and sharing the vision for Concordium and your backgrounds and your insights. They're very fascinating. Um, Like I said, I could have easily stayed on this call for another two hours, but uh, I want to respect your time and, and give that back to you. So thank you so much for coming to join the Smart Economy podcast, Lars. It was truly a pleasure. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciated the conversation and uh, we can always take a temperature check later on. Thanks a lot for having me. Cheers. And one last thing, if there's one way that users want to keep in contact with what's going on over at Concordium, what's the best way for them to do that? I'll say uh, we, we have uh, all the usual channels, but uh, they, if you go to uh, concordium.com, uh, the website, you can uh, easily find the various Telegram groups, GitHubs, uh, and, and what have you, right? So concordium.com uh, is a good uh, entry point for that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for, for joining the Smart Economy podcast and would love to have you on at a later time. Thanks a lot, Dylan. Cheers. Well, what did you think of that conversation? I had such a fun time chatting with an OG, you know, someone who didn't hesitate to get involved with Bitcoin within the first few years of its emergence. It was also really interesting to hear firsthand experience what it was like to build an online trading platform in the late 90s, especially in the face of many who doubted the potential of the technology. Hearing Lars draw comparisons between the emergence of the internet and blockchain technology is something I often think about myself, but don't really get a chance to discuss with those who are building products back in the day. On that note, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Smart Economy podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support the show, please keep Neo News Today in mind when voting for your Neo Council representative as part of Neo's governance process. We appreciate you and look forward to catching you next time.